We are returning to the final chapter and final words of James this morning. We've learned a lot over the course of our time in the letter of James. Again, true faith works. That's the overall theme of this letter. The nature of New Testament Christianity, the Christianity by which God supernaturally causes us to be born again. James says that he brings us forth by the word of truth. That faith, that kind of faith, is a faith that works. To put it in other words, true faith lives by faith, lives out the faith, and no matter the circumstances. The believers to whom James wrote encountered various trials, so he wrote to them to encourage them to continue to live out their faith no matter what. To that end, he exhorted them that we need a persistent faith in chapter 1, verses 2 through 25. A persistent faith is a faith that has learned to think differently about trials. It embraces trials as the work of a sovereign God to mature our faith. A persistent faith prays in response to trials in order to ask for wisdom to be able to respond well in trials. A persistent faith rests in the promises of God. It rests in his sovereign work in our lives for our good. In fact, James reminds us that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. A persistent faith clings to his promises by seeking to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. A persistent faith rests in his promise to bless those who remain faithful to him. Not only do we need a persistent faith, but we need a pure faith. Verses, chapter 1, verses 25 and 26. We need a faith that seeks to look at life from God's perspective. One that seeks to live out life for his good pleasure according to his purposes in accord with his wisdom, his counsel, his character. We need to have a persistent faith. We need to have a pure faith. We need to have a practicing faith. That's really the rest of the letter. Chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to the end. Chapter 5, verse 20. James helps us to, to see what it means that our faith works. Our faith shows no partiality. Our faith has always been demonstrated by works. In fact, he, he says that faith without works is dead. Our faith is self-controlled in the use of the tongue. Our faith is demonstrated in wisdom that is from above, not wisdom that is from below. Our faith has control of its passions, knowing that friendship with God is more valuable than friendship with the world because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Our faith is patient. It is patient in the midst of whatever hardship we may encounter, whatever oppression we may face from others, particularly trusting that Christ's return will mean judgment of the wicked and blessing to those who are his. In the final words of James's letter, he reminds us that our faith, again, New Testament faith, born again faith, is faithful. In these final exhortations in chapter 5, Starting at verse 12 and ending at verse 20, James gives us three final encouragements. In chapter 5, verse 12, he encourages us to be faithful to our word. In chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, he encourages us to be faithful in prayer. In chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, to be faithful to one another. Be faithful to our word 
be faithful in prayer, be faithful to one another. We'll read chapter 5 once again, and then we'll pray and we'll look at this section, this final section in greater detail. Chapter 5 of James. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat up your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fatten your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word, which is truth, your word, which sanctifies us. And we pray, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively, that they would be acceptable in your sight. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, James's final words, be faithful. Be faithful to your word, be faithful in prayer, be faithful to one another. Let's look at that first point where he says, be faithful to your word in verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes or your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. But above all, now some include verse 12 with the previous section and some leave it to stand alone. 
In the previous section, James was encouraging believers to be patient. Be patient knowing that the coming judgment of the Lord is near. We don't have to be vengeful people because we know that the Lord will avenge. He will bring everyone into final judgment. When he comes, his arrival will also mean blessing for his people. And so we need to remain steadfast. We need to remain patient in the midst of suffering. Even if that suffering is at the hand of someone else, we can be patient as we wait for the coming of the Lord. Because we know the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And then James says, but above all. As you're thinking about the Lord's second coming in judgment, as you're thinking about his second coming to bless his people, as you're thinking about being patient in tribulation, As you're thinking through and processing all of what he said up until this point, he says, above all, keep this in mind. Think about this. In other words, what James is about to say was a big deal to him. Perhaps he knew that the people of God were struggling with this. So he wanted to address it. Perhaps he knew that it was a temptation for those under oppression. Regardless of the reason why he includes it. And he mentions that this is also a matter of judgment. This is something that we will be held accountable by the Lord for. He says, do this so that you may not fall into condemnation in verse 12. What is it that we are to consider above all? Again, look back at the text. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. We return once again to the subject of speech. This time, however, our speech is not measured by if we speak with kindness or evil towards one another. It's not measured by presumptuousness or pride before God. The kind kind of speech that says, I will go into such and such a town and make a profit without considering the sovereignty of God. This speech that James is mentioning here is measured by whether or not we keep our word. In our minds, we may see the term swear, and we may think of swear words, some kind of foul or abusive language, but that's not what James is referring to. He's referring to the taking of oaths, and he's mimicking the teaching of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. There Jesus said, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool for his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Jesus in his day and James in his day were both addressing the same issue. The issue was that some people were taking up oaths in order to prove the authenticity of their words. They were swearing by heaven, swearing by earth, swearing by Jerusalem, swearing by themselves. In our day, at least when I was young, people used to say, I swear on, you know, somebody's grave. Maybe a parent or grandparent, some close relative. And they did that to try to underscore the truthfulness of their claim by swearing over something that they thought couldn't, they, no one would possibly disbelieve, Right? reality is that people feel they need to do this they need to swear by something even if they're not prone to lying because in the back of their minds they understood that understand that there is always the possibility that someone's going to lie someone's not going to keep their word one author said it this way fallen men are basically inveterate liars 
Children lie to their parents and parents lie to their children. Husbands lie to their wives and wives lie to their husbands. People lie to their employers who in turn lie to them and often to the public. Politicians lie to get elected and continue to lie once they're in office. People lie to the government, perhaps most notably on their income taxes. Educators lie, scientists lie, members of the media lie. Our society is built on a framework of lies, leading one to wonder whether our social structure would survive if everyone were forced to speak the truth for even one day. End quote. Even if it's not a flat-out lie, often people make promises that either they will be unable to keep in the future or at some point unwilling to keep. And so we all kind of wonder when someone makes a promise to do something, if they're actually going to keep their word. Well, James is pro- prohibiting us here from making oaths. And this prohibition is intended to keep people from trivializing their word. As a Christian, we should be a person of our word. When we say yes, that should mean yes. There should be no doubt. You should not be the kind of person who says yes and does not follow through. You should be the kind of person who doesn't need additional proof or verification for your word to be trusted in everyday interactions. And these are everyday interactions. James is not talking about all oaths in an absolute sense. It used to be the case that whenever someone would give a testimony in court, they would swear on the Bible. Or when public officials were sworn in to their office, they would put their hand on the Bible. And those days may be no more, but the reason why they did that was to indicate that they were swearing by someone greater than themselves. Essentially putting themselves at the mercy of God, should they be found to have lied, or for public officials, should they be found to have fallen short of their oath of office? This kind of accountability is not what's in view in James's letter. He's talking about our everyday interactions. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Our word in everyday life to one another should be trustworthy. God is faithful. If God is faithful to his word and we're called by the name of God, we've been saved by God, then we ought to be faithful to our word as well. If you say you're going to help a brother or sister in need, be faithful to do it. If you commit to praying for someone, be faithful to do it. If you commit to serving in the church, be faithful to do it. If you commit to taking the trash out at home, be faithful to do it. Well, what if my situation has changed since I committed? What if my financial situation has changed? Be faithful to your word. What if I'm just going through difficulties right now and I don't feel like it? Be faithful to your word. Christian, are you a person of your word? Do people know you that way in the world, in your workplace? Are you known as a person who keeps their promises, their commitments? Are you known that way in the world as the world looks at you, as you interact with others? I've been talking to my kids from time to time about what credit is in particular because, you know, it's, it's not something that we talk about very often. And one of the ways you prepare your children is by talking to them about what credit is. Um, and credit can be a bad thing. Well, debt can be a bad thing. But credit is only bad because of the people who wield it. It's kind of like weapons, right? A gun in and of itself is not bad. There's nothing evil about a gun. What makes a gun bad is the person who wields it, right? What makes, a, what makes credit bad or wrong, the problem with credit is that people lack self-control. 
But the whole point of credit is to prove to lenders that you are trustworthy. That if they give you something to borrow, you will give it back to them in the way you committed to giving it back to them. That's all credit is. It's proof that you're trustworthy to the world, to lenders, to financial institutions. Christians of all people should have the best credit. Now, sometimes things happen, right? But generally speaking, we should have the best possible credit because we should be people of our word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. I like one author's comment on this passage. He says the point of this command and its parallel to Matthew 534 is that the Christian does not need to swear for his word is his bond. Swearing is necessary only in a society where the truth is not reverenced. Whether he swears or not, the Christian ought to always speak the truth. And this will mean that a simple unadorned yes or no is sufficient. End quote. As a Christian, you ought to be faithful to your word. Your life as a Christian is one who's been brought forth by the word of truth ought to exemplify truth in every way. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Moving on, he says, be faithful to your word, also be faithful in prayer, verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth bore its fruit. It is the expectation of God that his people pray. There's no such thing in the New Testament or the Old Testament as a, quote, prayer warrior. Because we're all equally commanded to pray. Jesus said we ought to pray in light of our new relationship with God as our father. Matthew 7, ask and it'll be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be open. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks find. The one who knocks, it will be open. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He says, you have a father in heaven. And so you ought to ask, you ought to pray. Paul affirmed the necessity of prayer in the life of the Christian frequently throughout his letters. Ephesians 6.18, pray at all times. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Romans 12.12, be constant in prayer. Paul even affirmed that prayer is a means of grace for us. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Be anxious, anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Through prayer, God provides a guard for us. The term guard there is a military term. It's like seeing soldiers at a, at a garrison who are walking about the outside, keeping the garrison safe, keeping the building safe, the people on the inside safe. Paul says that when you pray, God will provide for you a guard for your heart and your mind 
in Christ Jesus. Peter also affirmed the necessity of prayer. First Peter chapter five, he said there that we are to cast our anxieties upon our God because he cares for us. The writer of Hebrews said that we ought to come boldly before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Of course, James affirmed the significance of prayer in his letter already. In chapter one, he talked about and reminded us to pray in faith for wisdom so that we might respond well in trials. In chapter four, he said, when we pray, we need to pray with pure motives, not for things that will satisfy our passions, but rather for the glory of God. Here again in chapter 5, we return to the theme of prayer. James mentions the word pray in some way seven times in these six verses. Prayer is important. Prayer is significant. Again, this is one of the last things that James says in his letter. This is something he wants them to remember. We see first the command to pray. Again, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is there anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. He says, if anyone among you suffering, let him pray. If there's anyone, doesn't matter who it is, from the greatest to the least, from the pulpit to the pew, if there's anyone in the body of Christ who's suffering, what should they do? They should pray. The word suffering here suggests the experience of trial or hardship. In other words, much of what James has been talking about throughout the entire letter. When you suffer, which we all will suffer in life. When you suffer, when you encounter various trials, you should pray. Whenever you're suffering, the answer is not to withdraw within yourself. It's not to shrink away from the fellowship. It's not to disregard the word of God or to lash out in anger and try to have your anger excused because you're just going through some things. But the response is to pray. Sometimes we think of prayer as something wholly other, something supernatural, and it is something supernatural. But it is also as simple as having a conversation with someone. You talk to your neighbor, you talk to your coworker, you talk to your classmate. In this case, we're not talking to a neighbor, a coworker, or a classmate. We're not talking just to a best friend or a sibling. We're talking about and we're talking to a good and gracious heavenly father. One who is better than any earthly father has ever been to you. One who is more faithful, more true, more kind, more powerful, all wise. One who is sovereign over all things in the universe. The same one who the text says is constantly working out all things together for your good. The one who gives you every good and perfect gift. This is the one who commands you to pray. Isn't that amazing? Like what other ruler? I think I said this to our Bible study group the other day. What other ruler in all of the history of humanity? What other ruler today would say to his subjects? Hey, guys. Come and talk to me. Tell me what's on your mind. Tell me what I command you by decree of the king to cast your anxieties on me. No one does that. But the sovereign ruler of the universe says that to you. He says that to you because he cares. 
question is, do you believe that? And if you believe that, then when you suffer, pray. Yes, cast your cares on him because he cares for you, but there's more. Listen again to verse 13. Is there anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Prayer is not less than casting our cares on him, but it's also more than simply casting our cares on him. We have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. So yes, he desires to hear about our woes, but he also desires to hear about our wows. He wants to know when we're cheerful. He wants to know when we are at ease. He wants to know when we're joyful. He wants to hear from us when we're suffering. He also wants to hear from us when we're soaring. The text says, let him sing praise. When we gather together, when we gather together to sing, we sing not because God desires to hear perfect words from us. We joke that God hasn't called us to make a perfect noise, but a joyful noise, right? And we joke that because it's true. You're not called to sing because the Lord wants a performance from you. Don't tell me that you don't sing on Sunday morning because you can't carry a tune. That's irrelevant. We come together to sing in order to worship God. We come together to sing in order to praise the true and living God, the compassionate and merciful God, the one who has been compassionate and merciful to you, the one who has forgiven your sins, the one who sent his son to die for you, the one who commands you to cast your cares on him. We want to sing praise about and to him together. And listen, maybe you're not all that excited about this God. But sometimes I need to hear it. And so when you come to sing, sing loud. Sing with your heart. Because sometimes I need to be reminded of the truth of who God is. And sometimes your neighbor who's sitting next to you needs to be reminded of the truth of who God is. So if you're cheerful, Sing praise. Psalm 34, 1 through 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. If you truly have a relationship with the Lord, Christian, then you should earnestly seek him both, seek him in prayer, both when you're challenged as well as when you're cheerful. Or what about times of sickness or great distress? Perhaps you're physically sick. Perhaps you're so broken in light of some trial or season of trial that you're encountering that you feel you lack the strength to come to God on your own. What's James's answer to that? His answer to that is pray but it's the prayer of the community of faith. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The command to pray is a command to pray when you are suffering. It's a command to pray when you're rejoicing. It's a command to pray when you're at your lowest. No matter the circumstance, we are to pray. Now, there are two fairly convincing views on the word translated sick in verse 14. What does it mean that someone is sick there? The word can be translated with reference to physical illness or it can be translated with reference to 
spiritual sickness. For example, Romans chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, Paul refers to the one who is weak in the faith. And he says the one who is weak in the faith, we have to bear with their weaknesses. And he's not talking about physical sickness. He's talking about those who might not like the fact that you eat meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul's like, if you eat, if you eat meat sacrificed to idols and you're okay with that, don't eat it in front of the, the brother who has weak faith because that's going to offend them. So don't do things, even if you're free to do it, don't do things that's going to offend your neighbor, your brother or sister in Christ. Um, but we ought to bear with their weaknesses. My point is it's the same word, so it can be translated either way. I tend to favor the translation of physical illness in part because it seems like James is intentionally presenting three different situations in which prayer is required. But it really could go either way. There's ample evidence on both sides when looking at how the word is used elsewhere in the New Testament. The word sick is translated sick in the ESV. Nevertheless, a word always means what it means based on context and how it's used. And I think that regardless of how you translate it, whether you think this is physical sickness that he's talking about or just spiritual weakness as a result of some, some trial that you're going through, you're just feeling so discouraged, maybe depressed, downtrodden. Regardless, the point is still the same. If it's physical weakness or spiritual weakness, you're still going to do the same thing. You need someone to pray for you. If it's physical, we could insert any number of physical ailments, right? Some prolonged sickness that has you in and out of hospitals. Some unknown sickness that has your doctor scratching heads and subjecting you to multiple treatments. Some debilitating sickness that just has you laid out for days on end. It can be discouraging. It can be depressing. If it's weakness as a result of some trial, some, again, something that is discouraging, that is weighing down on you, it can sap your energy. It can sap your motivation to do normal things. It's easier to withdraw at that time. You know that you should keep up your spiritual disciplines, but you just start to lack motivation to do it. Well, what do you do in those situations? You need to tell someone about it. Tell someone in the community of faith. Call for those who are spiritually mature. In the text, James specifically says, call for the elders of the church. In context, I believe he means the elders of the church. But the reason why he calls for the elders of the church is because the elders of the church are spiritually mature. They ought to be. And they ought to be ones who would tend to pray prayers of faith. The point is that if for some reason you cannot pray in faith for your situation, ask for help. says let him call for the elders of the church let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the lord the concept of anointing with oil was symbolic in the old testament of the sanctifying work of the spirit of god to set someone apart kings and prophets were anointed the whole concept of messiah is that he was the anointed one the chosen one of god to anoint with oil in this context would have also been symbolic i don't think that james intended this as a rule if someone's in bad shape the elders should come and take physical oil and pray over them at all times i mean there's not even any indication as to what kind of oil we should use, if it should be poured or sprinkled. I don't think this is intended to be a rule. It's intended to be more symbolic. You can use oil or you cannot use oil. The whole point of the section is prayer. Prayer is the point. Effective prayer. Faithful prayer. Prayer by those who have faith. Again, he calls for the elders specifically because, generally speaking, it would have been the elders would have exhibited the kind of faithfulness that is needed in prayer. 
We saw the command of prayer. We also see the consequence of prayer. Verse 15, what happens when faithful men come together, faithful people come together, when the elders come to pray over you? Verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. When someone's in dire straits for whatever reason, too weak to pray for themselves, call for the elders of the church. Involve the community of faith. Call upon those who are full of faith. Have them pray over you. He says the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick and the Lord will raise him up. Again, no matter if we're talking about physical illness or spiritual weakness, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Salvation in this case is deliverance. If you pray in faith, in other words, for the deliverance of someone who is sick or weak, unable to pray for themselves, God will bring deliverance. That's what the text says. It's usually at this point that our more charismatic brothers and sisters stand up and clap. And our more conservative brothers and sisters start to squirm a bit in their seats. Charismatic folks will say, I told you so. You have enough faith and it will happen, right? Conservative folks, it doesn't really mean that, right? Well, the text says what it means and it means what it says. However, we have to remember that scripture interprets scripture and we don't, we don't interpret scripture in isolation. We serve a God who works all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11. That means we don't get to dictate to God what he should and shouldn't do. He's not a genie in a bottle. That's not the purpose of prayer. We don't just come to him and say, God, I want you to do this, and God jumps through the hoop that we ask. James has already mentioned earlier in the letter that if we pray for things that are for our own passions, God will oppose us. So this is not prayer that we offer expecting for God to do whatever we want. We can and should pray for whatever is on our hearts. We can and should pray for what brings us anxiety for ourselves and for others. We can and should pray for healing, for health, for deliverance of some sickness, ailment, or disease. When we pray, we ought to pray in faith. A double-minded man will receive nothing from the Lord. Prayers of faith have great power. Again, if someone is sick or even spiritually weak and they call upon the community of believers the faithful those full of faith yes even call for the elders and they come and they pray they should pray for your deliverance they should pray in faith and we should pray knowing that God will answer our prayers according to his perfect will we pray in faith for what we want but we also pray trusting that whatever God gives us in response is going to be good do you believe that? First of all, when you pray, do you pray in faith, believing that God is able to heal if he so chooses? And so do you pray for that? Do you pray boldly? Again, Hebrews chapter four says that we should come boldly before the throne of grace. The whole point of saying that we should come boldly is that when you come boldly, you come asking for whatever is on your heart. To receive mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. Come boldly. If you want to see someone healed of some sickness, ask God for it. That's the point. Do you pray with that kind of faith? Do you believe that God is able to do that? Second, when you pray, do you pray? Understanding that it may be, hear me here, it may be good 
for you in the mind of God to remain in your trial, to remain suffering, to remain in your pain. That may be what God has decided is good for you right now. Do you understand that? Do you believe that God only gives good and perfect gifts and that includes your suffering and sickness? Do you trust him to give what is good even if that involves you continuing in suffering? One author said it this way, the promise of healing for the sick offers a much needed corrective for those of us who have trouble praying boldly for we fear or even assume that God will not do what we ask of him. Instead, we ought to pray boldly, believing that he is a God of power and love and that he listens to the prayers of his people. A necessary caveat, however, requires us to remember that he chooses how and when he heals, as Paul clearly lays out in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10. In that passage, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10, is Paul praying for healing. He had a thorn in the flesh. Paul the apostle the great and wonderful and amazing Paul the Apostle. He went and preached everywhere in the world, was beaten, bruised, shipwrecked, all of the things that he went through for Christ's sake, imprisoned. He's the reason why many of us are here today because it is through his letters that we came to faith in Christ. But Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He had something that was physically painful for him. And he prayed three times. And you know what God said? You know what, Paul? You've done so much for me. I'm just going to go ahead and take it away for you, bro. I got you. You know what God said? No. He prayed. Paul, and you, you don't, you're not going to tell me that Paul didn't have faith. So Paul had faith, and he prayed to his God that he would remove it. And God said, no. Why? My strength is made perfect in weakness. Because Paul had to learn that. Paul had to learn that. Paul had to learn that. If Paul had to learn that, how much for you and I? My strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Back to our text, James says in verse 15, And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. In the first part of verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Moving on, the text assumes that those who are sick and weak, if they're sick and weak as a result of their sin, that they've confessed it to the elders, to those who are called upon to pray in faith. Now, this text is not an affirmation of the practice of confession in the Catholic Church. Peter says that every believer is a priest unto God in 1 Peter. There are no men specially set apart to be priests. Moreover, Paul says that there's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The point of this text is that confession of sin in the community is assumed practice. There are times when we sin and the natural consequence of our sin is some kind of pain or there's something that we've physically done or a choice or a decision that we've made and there are consequences for it. If we're in pain as a result of our sin, instead of continuing to cover up, we ought to confess it to the community of the faithful and seek the Lord for healing. We tend to be very closed off to one another. We tend to be very self-oriented, self-centered, self-conscious about our sin. We tend to want to put our best foot forwards on Sunday mornings as if New Testament Christianity is always cheerful and a bed of roses and there's never suffering. 
We tend to want to pretend as if we don't sometimes sin and as if that sin doesn't have consequences. Sin does have consequences. And if we've sinned, the worst thing for us to do is to continue to cover it up and pretend like it never happened. It's just going to continue to fester and eat away at our faith. The assumption in the New Testament is that just as we confessed that we have sinned in order to become a Christian, that our lives will be a life of continual confession. Not to a lone priest in a booth in the back of a church building, but confession to one another that we may pray for one another. This is Galatians 6. I've shared this passage with you before. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Confession is the expectation in the New Testament. And as we confess our sins to one another, we should gather together around one another and help encourage one another through it. And we saw the command of prayer, the consequence of prayer. Next, we see the conclusion of his teaching on prayer. Second part of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and it bore, earth bore its fruit. Well, again, what's the point of, that James is driving at? What's the conclusion of all of what he said about prayer? This is it. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That's why I said the point earlier when he refers to the elders is not just about the elders. It's not like God's not going to hear the prayer of other people. The point is that there are people who have faith. We all ought to have faith and trust in God when we pray. This righteous person that he's referring to here, it doesn't have anything to do with how we live in life. Of course, that is what the term means broadly speaking. But in context, it's about those who have faith when they pray. That's what he's talking about. They pray in faith. Just as we are to confess our sins to one another, just as we are to confess our weaknesses, our sicknesses, our hardship, our discouragements, we're to confess to one another, particularly to those who are full of faith in the community, we confess so that they may pray for us. And James gives us an example of Elijah, a man of faith. He says, Elijah was just a man. He was not a spirit. He was not an angel. He was just a man, flesh and blood. He was a human being. Sometimes we look back at the prophets or we look back at the, the figures in, the, in, in Scripture and we think, man, those guys were super spiritual. I could never do those kinds of things. I could never be that effective in ministry for God. Or what made Elijah different? James says it was his faith. It wasn't that he had more of the Holy Spirit than any of us did. It wasn't that, you know, he was the best kind of person. He was a man who, you know, was super spiritual and always happy. I mean, we saw Elijah sitting under a tree sulking. But what made Elijah different was his faith in God. That's the only thing that separates us and him. Look again. He prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain. Then he prayed again. And the, the, the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Why did that happen? Because God listened to him. God listened to Elijah and did what Elijah asked. Because Elijah had faith. Elijah trusted God. He was not asking for these things to spend them on his passions. He was not asking for these things to build up his own kingdom. Elijah was not asking for these things 
for any other reason other than his jealousness for the glory of God. He wanted his own people to worship the true and living God. He wanted to throw dirt in the face of the idols of the peoples. He wanted to prove that their idols were not gods, but the true and living God is the only God. So he prayed, and he prayed believing that God is able, and he prayed believing that God was here, would hear him, and he prayed believing that God was willing to answer his prayer. Is that how you pray? Again, when you pray, when you pray for anything, but especially when you pray for healing, when you pray for health, when you pray in the midst of weakness, when you pray for one another, do you pray in faith? Do you pray with your mind engaged and resting on the truth that God is, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work in us? Do you pray when you pray, trusting that God will hear because he cares for you? You pray trusting that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift and that God is working all things together for your good. Do you pray with that confidence? When you suffer, when you're cheerful, when you're sick, do you pray? And when you pray, do you pray in faith? Perhaps you think I can never be like Elijah. Well, how about Hudson Taylor? who started China Inland Mission on confidence that God would provide for his every need, not by sending out a missionary letter, but by praying for God to provide. Or George Mueller, who himself fed himself, his family, and I don't know how many orphans, again, not by means of sending out help letters, support letters, and asking people for things, but simply by asking God to provide. And God provided Again, these are people just like us. When you pray, do you pray in faith? This is what the Lord is calling you to do. Well, again, these are James's final exhortations to the church and his final words here. His overall desire for them is to simply be faithful. Just as God is faithful, the faith of the New Testament, New Testament Christianity is faithful. He exhorts them to be faithful to their word. He exhorts them to be faithful in prayer. Finally, he exhorts them to be faithful to one another. Look at verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If anyone among you, if there's anyone within the household of faith, within the community of believers who wanders from the truth, you know, he doesn't say that they fall away from the truth. He doesn't say that they wholly leave the truth. They renounce the truth. He says they've wandered away. If there's anyone in that situation, the rest applies to them. The word translated wandering in the original is where we get our word planet from. And that's because the ancients saw the planets moving from place to place in the sky. And they thought, well, it seems like that thing's just kind of wandering about up there. We don't know what's going on. And so they named the planets planets. The image here is of a child wandering away from their parent, maybe in a busy mall or out on the street. Just as for a parent, the image here should invoke fear in the heart of the community. We ought to be so zealous for one another that we fear to allow each other to wander away from the truth. We read from Colossians 3 earlier for our scripture reading. Verse 12, he says, Paul put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We are one in Christ. We have been raised up with Christ. We have been called together in one body in Christ. We're chosen in him together. Love ought to bind us together in perfect harmony. We ought to be unified. We ought to be teaching and admonishing one another regularly, even through the songs that we sing, as I mentioned earlier. If we're busy doing those things, then there shouldn't be anyone who's able to wander away from the faith. This is the kind of wandering from the truth that would cause one to wonder if that person is even on the faith, in the faith or not. To the point of James, again, true faith works. It works in a particular way. It lives in a particular way. And if someone's wandering away from the truth, that means that they're not living in the way they ought to live if they are in the faith. Moreover, he doesn't say why they wandered. It could be because of the weight of trial and suffering that has overwhelmed their faith and their need of encouragement, their need of some to gather around them and to pray with them. It could be that they become so disgruntled and angry about their suffering that they give up, they give in, and they wander from the truth. It could be that they have too long sought friendship with the world, thus they've been drawn away from the truth by their friendship with the world in pursuit of their passions. Either way, again, we ought to be so zealous for one another that we notice when someone is wandering from the truth. It is to our shame that anyone's able to wander away from the fellowship for a long period of time without someone reaching out to them and calling them back doesn't matter if they're 50 or 500 people. Love ought to compel us to know one another to the degree that we chase each other down if we see someone wandering from the truth. Again, if someone wanders from the truth, James says, and someone brings him back, let them know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If we believe that the one who wanders is not wandering in an absolute sense, James would not be saying that they could lose their salvation, for example. Scripture's clear that we cannot lose their salvation because God is the one who holds us. We don't hold ourselves. If true faith works and they're wandering away from good works, then this is a call to faithfully call one another back to Christ. The salvation in this sense wouldn't be salvation in an absolute sense because the person's already saved, but merely Salvation in the sense of delivering them from their foolishness and encouraging them to live up to the faith, which is what James is writing about in this letter to begin with. Now, it could be that the one who's wandered from the faith has truly wandered. And the reality is they truly wander away from the faith and they show no evidence of faith at all. Then it's clear that they were not truly in the faith to begin with. Either way, whether this is a believer who's wandering or someone who has professed faith and walks away, meaning it becomes clear by their works that they were not truly in the faith, the point is the same. The person is in the community of believers. We ought to be so involved and so zealous for one another that we see each other in distress in our joys. We see each other when we're on fire for Christ, and we see each other when we're wandering away, and we run hard after each other if we see each other wandering away. James's exhortation is clear here at the end of his letter. Be faithful to one another. And I would commend that to you again. Our faith, our life of faith is a faith that works. It is a faith that works no matter the circumstances. 
So we need to be faithful to encourage one another to keep the faith. The writer of Hebrews, cognizant of this, wrote in chapter 10 that in order for us to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, that we must consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is why we must gather. That is why it is the expectation of New Testament Christianity that we gather together regularly, faithfully, consistently. That's why we must have a clear membership process. We need to know who's in and who's out so that we know who to chase after, who to spend our energy and effort seeking after, to seek to restore when they wander. It isn't possible for us to have this kind of care for every Christian in the world or even every Christian in our area, but we can and we ought to have this kind of care for those who are members of the Catonsville Baptist Church. That's the point. We need to have this kind of care for one another. We need to be faithful to one another. Well, again, here at the end of the letter of James to the church, we're reminded that we need to be faithful to our word. Just as God is faithful to his word, so should we. We need to be faithful in prayer in all circumstances at all times. We need to be faithful to one another, to hold one another accountable, to walk according to this faith, which is a faith that works. We need to be zealous to do this for the good of one another, and also for the glory of God in his church. Let us pray. Father, thank you again for your word, which is true. Your word, which sanctifies us. Thank you for the reminders in your word that we ought to be faithful to our word. Thank you for the reminder that we ought to be faithful in prayer. Thank you for the reminder that we ought to be faithful to one another. Help us to do this. As we know, you are faithful. As we know, you began a good work in us, and so you have promised to be faithful to complete it. Indeed, help us to be faithful for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.